Well, as you are well aware by this point, we are working through what will become the entire New Testament, taking a book or two, sometimes three, if they're extraordinarily short, as they were a few weeks ago. Um, we're taking just one of those books a week, and we are talking about the general themes, the high-level overview of the book, talking a little bit about what the author is trying or what God is trying to say through that author. Um, and the point of all that, of course, is that as you go to read these books, that if you're taking notes or if, even if you write in the margins of your Bible, you come to those stories that you have at least the beginning of a framework to understand what is trying to be said. A lot of times we can go and we can read you know, maybe a particular passage that's with a devotional for a day or maybe you're on a reading plan and we can focus just on those parts, but we lose the sight of the whole text. And so the project that we're engaging in now is an attempt to kind of give some large big picture overviews so that when you go and do that, you understand how those different little pieces fit in, whereas you go and you read the entire book, which I've encouraged you to do um, from week to week as we talk about them on Sunday to go home and that week read through them, um, that you have in the back of your mind sort of the, the general sweep of the general arc of the book so that you know what's being said. And so last week we looked at Mark, today we're going to look at Matthew, um, and as you can well guess, Next week, we'll probably be looking at Luke and probably John after that. So we're going to knock out the Gospels here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and if you remember last week, we talked about how Mark, what did we talk about? What was the general thrust of last week, if you remember? Yeah, suffering. It's exciting as it is, right? Mark, Mark as of all the Gospels, is focused on teaching his churches, the churches to which he writes, uh, about the purpose of suffering and the reality that following Christ is taking up a cross. And we talked at the end, um, and Jesus will actually say that if, if you, those who do not take up your cross are not fit to follow me. And so we need to understand that part of um, following Jesus is going to be taking on suffering, uh, often for the benefit of someone else. And, and it, is, it is living out that sacrifice that Christ did for us for other people. Um, and Mark, on the whole, is we, I kept using the word, uh, is, is, is a little dark as a result for that. There's not a lot of joy and hope that we find in the New Gospel and in some of the other Gospels, and we certainly find in Matthew. I did mention at some point last week that 95% of Mark is found in Matthew, um, and then that sort of begged the question why do we have Mark at all if all of it is in Matthew? And it has to do with the way in which Mark presents the material. Matthew's going to take Mark's material and add more of the story, give us a little bit more of the silver lining. Um, it is a much more hopeful book. Um, and as we get into Luke, Luke next week, um, Luke is probably one of my favorite books just because it is, it is so hopeful. It is such uh, an invitation to those who are on the out to become part of the family. Um, so we'll, next week, we'll talk about that in Luke. Today, last week, we, t we started with the beginning of Mark, the opening. And today, as, as we approach Matthew, we're actually going to take the end. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with Mark, what, what is the last, or I'm sorry, with Matthew, what is the last thing in Matthew? The last little scene in Matthew, you know what that is? That's what we're going to read today. Christmas, no, well, that would be the beginning, right? I'm talking about the end. So it's the Great Commission, okay? This is, this is, Matthew is the book that gives us the Great Commission, and that's what we're gonna turn to now. It's Matthew 28, 16 through 20. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to it, or otherwise you can pull out a pew Bible. Um, 
And if you have your own, I wouldn't recommend marking in the church's Bibles, but if you have your own, go ahead and pull out a pencil or grab one that's, that's in the you know, seat in front of you because um, we're going to be uh, sort of bracketing out and making some notes today as we, we go through. We're going to go through the whole book, um, but we're going to lead up to this today. So we're going to read this now. It says, now the 11 disciples, remember at this point, Judas is gone. So there are 11 left. They've not yet appointed a replacement for him. He says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. Um, I don't know about you, that's a much more hopeful ending than Mark gave us or that we have from Mark. Um, we talked last week, there are some endings that were added to Mark that are a little more hopeful, but as we have Mark, it was just death, then the women go to the, the tomb, uh, they see the resurrection and we're told they went away with fear and trembling. And that was, that's like seen, seen over, curtain closed, right? It's just sort of left there. And here we have sort of the return of Jesus to his disciples, giving him this, what we know as the great commission to go forth into all, all the world, do what, teach them what I've taught you and I'm with you to the end of the age. A much more hopeful ending, right? That gives me a lot more hope for walking out into the world today than uh, more. It's, it's definitely in there in Mark, but certainly not to the extent that we find here at the end of Matthew. So we are going to um, skip back to the beginning of Matthew. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to do a very high overview of some of the parts of Matthew. So you can begin to see the structure. I'm going to summarize those sections so that we can start to see the theme or themes that Mark is developing that lead to this moment. Um, before we do that, just a little bit about Matthew itself as a book. We think it is probably written sometime in the period of 80 to 100 AD. So uh, the temple has fallen. That happened in 70 AD. Obviously, Jesus is gone at this point. Um, and sometimes people have a little like hesitation or apprehension about the fact that these are written so far after Jesus is gone. Right? So Jesus is crucified somewhere around 30 AD. Um, so we're talking, you know, 50 to 70 years later, these things are getting written down. Um, and it's important to remember that it's not that Matthew sat down and said, I'm just going to write a story now. It is that for 70 years, these things have been floating around. These stories are well known in the Gospels. Um, the Old Testament was transmitted from gen generation to generation orally. It was certainly written on scrolls, but it was memorized. We, this, these are cultures that are oral traditions. And so these stories, everyone knows well at this point. The church has been growing for now for 70 years. And there came a time when the apostles, sort of the, early, the first generation of the church, is getting ready to pass away. And we need to make sure that all of that gets transmitted. And so now it is then that it becomes the time and very important that we start to actually write things down. And so that's why a lot of these gospels tend to be written down um, sometimes you know, decades after the fact is because that's when it becomes important that we're leaving these records and making sure that these gospel writers are recording uh, for posterity and for the church what happened. Um, and I mentioned that Matthew uses almost all of Mark so he will use 95% of it, and then he will add lots of other stories to Mark um, to, to fill out his gospel and the way that he need, or that God is leading him to tell his story. Um, and Matthew, among the early church, was the most popular gospel, bar none. It was uh, preached the most, it was quoted the most, it was copied the most. We have the most in, in the way of like early transcripts or manuscripts where it was copied over and over. Um, it was read 
in, um, in those early churches. If you remember, we've talked about the early church. Sunday was like a four, six, eight hour affair. You would get together, there would be hours of scripture reading, um, and then there would be hours of eating together and worshiping together. And so it was an all day affair. And in that time, Matthew was read quite a bit. Um, it was the gospel that the early church went to when they wanted to know uh, what was going on. And certainly they saw fit to, to leave us all four. And thankfully they did. Um, it is, Matthew is extraordinarily Jewish. We've talked before about how the gospels are picking up the story of Israel and carrying it forward and showing how Jesus is uh, the fulfillment of that Old Testament story and God's purpose. And Matthew, more than the others, does that. And, and we're going we're to see that develop today as we, as we march through it. Um, but for Matthew, he was about allowing the early church. And if you remember, the early church was early on primarily Jewish Christians. They were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they were actually a sect within Judaism. And so after the destruction of the temple, we talked about a month ago, about how the Sadducees were centered around the temple and temple worship. When the temple goes away, they were sort of gone. As far as we know, they were extinct at that point. There's probably some of them floating around, but we don't have writings. They're not part of the society as, in the way that they were. And so who's left is the Pharisees. And so within Judaism, there was a struggle between the Pharisees, who were the popular uh, sort of arm of Judaism and the Christians who were a sect of Judaism. And there were, so there were these de debates. And Matthew writes his gospel um, and, and you, you hear things about how, you know, Jesus says, I didn't come to, you know, not one dot or tilde or iota uh, will be removed from the law, right? He talks about how I've come to fulfill it, but it's not passing away. And so we get these themes in Matthew about how the, the Jewish law is not done away with um, it is not replaced, it is added to and expanded. And what Matthew's starting to do is to make his church understand how someone who's Jewish can retain their Jewish heritage, while at the same time, someone who's Gentile and isn't Jewish can come in and be part of the family of God without having to become Jewish. And in Matthew's mind, in his gospel, that's a perfectly okay thing. And we know that that's gonna become a debate in the church Paul's gonna address it in uh, the Galatians, the whole concept of circumcision or the idea of controversy, the surrounding, whether or not uh, Gentiles must be circumcised, that becomes a real issue for the church. And Matthew's gospel is, is trying to address some of that strife and that controversy. Um, but he's also asking questions like, what do we do with a Jewish Messiah who the Jews reject? How do we understand that? Right? And so he's trying to show how Judaism and the story of Israel and the work of God through Israel is coming to its fruition and how it's not being done away with. It's not just some new guy coming in and shoving Judaism aside, but rather completing, fulfilling, and moving God's purpose for the world into its sort of next phase. Right? Um, and then it goes sort of right hand in hand with that, but what do we do with a new faith or, or this faith that is largely surrounding a Jewish Messiah, but we look around and all of a sudden it's primarily Gentiles, right? Those create sort of questions. Like what do we, what do, we do with what has historically been a Jewish faith, but now it's, it's a bunch of Gentiles, right? I mean, look around, how many of us are, are Jewish by heritage? Not one of us, right? We are all Gentiles, right? So, so how, how do we as Gentiles relate to the nation of Israel? And so Mark, or Matthew, I'm sorry, is dealing with a lot of those issues in his gospel. And it becomes a bridge between the Jewish past and what we know will be the Gentile future. 
And so that, those are the issues that are sort of coming to the top as Matthew is telling his gospel. Um, where Mark was um, picking up the Exodus story and telling us a lot about the wilderness. Remember, we looked at that first opening segment and he uses the term wilderness four times and then talks about wild beasts. So that theme gets picked up at least five times real quick in, in Mark's gospel as he sets up this sort of suffering, wilderness wandering reality of the church. Uh, that is not yet into the promised land. Matthew will also use the Exodus narrative, uh, which was formative and important for Judaism, but he does so in a different way. And in, in, he does it by explaining Jesus as the new Moses. Okay, so where Mark cared a lot about the wilderness wandering and the suffering aspect, Matthew is going to show us Jesus as the new, the true Moses. Okay, um, if you know the opening story, if you know the birth narratives, we have two of, two of them, and they're, they're a little different. They're, they differ in details. Um, but Matthew has uh, a story that's very much, I mean, it becomes very obvious that he's trying to tell us the ways in which Jesus was the new Moses. Luke has what we typically know as the Christmas story, right? The Magi, the, the going to Bethlehem, like that's, our, that's the Christmas story that we remember. And then we have pieces that we pick out of Matthew. But one of the things, I mean, I'm just gonna kind of describe it to you and just think in your back of your mind as we talk about this, remember the story of Moses, right? What, what happens? The Magi, the wise men do come, they come to Herod, they say, where is Jesus? Where's this king? And Herod uh, consults his, his wise men, right? His scribes. And they say, well, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. And so they go down to Bethlehem. What does Herod tell the, the, the Magi, the wise men, um, to do when he, they find this new king. Do you remember? Yeah, go back, come back to me and tell me where he is because I want to go worship him right too, right? And what does Herod really want to do? Okay, so when Jesus is born and uh, in, the, in the days following that, God comes to Joseph and tells him he needs to run, right? Herod's coming for you. And, and what happens then? Do you remember? Where do they go? They go to Egypt, Right? Where was Israel when Moses comes on the scene? Egypt. When Moses was a baby, Pharaoh does what to all the young children? He kills them. Remember, he, his mother puts him in a basket and sends him down the Nile, and then the princess finds him. Right? Herod does the same thing, as Matthew tells us. Herod kills all of the children, the boys under the age of two, which is exactly what Pharaoh did. Right? And then when things have sort of calmed down, God says, okay, you can come out of Egypt come back, right? Come out of Egypt into the land. Well, that's, the, that's Israel's story, right? And so Matthew opens up his birth narrative and tells the birth narrative and includes the pieces that tells us Jesus is just like Moses. Jesus is better, truer Moses, right? Um, and then as he structures, and what we're really gonna spend our time today, as he structures his narrative, there is lots of action, but those pieces of action surround five, what we call discourses, so five speeches that Jesus is going to give. What's important about five as far as you know, as it relates to Judaism? The Pentateuch. I, I, the question was, what is important about five as, as it relates to Judaism? And Leah correctly answered the Pentateuch, which is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. They were known as the law Right? So when you read about Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, the law refers to those first five books. It's the Torah, the, the books of Moses. The books of Moses, right? And then the, the prophets are the, are the other pieces. Um, 
And so as Matthew goes to create, write his story, he organizes things in such a way that we have four major discourses, or five, I'm sorry, five major discourses, which is a way of saying, here is in some way the new Pentateuch, right? And so there's, he picks up these themes of the Old Testament. And so today we're going to spend just a moment talking about those five discourses and the general thrust of each one of them and how they lead us ultimately to this moment on the mountain out, uh, outside of Jerusalem as Jesus gives his people the Great Commission. So this first one, this is where if you want to sort of bracket or make notes in your Bible, I, I would encourage you to do that. This first discourse comes in chapters five through seven. It's five, six, and seven. This one's extraordinarily famous, and it's the Sermon on the Mount, right? So this is where we get uh, what Luke will call the Beatitudes, but blessed are the poor, the weak, the meek, um, right? Those who hunger, the pure of heart, the peacemakers. And then he goes on to... Uh, give us sort of new laws, right? This is, which, this is where he talks about, uh, you've heard, heard it said, do not murder, but I say don't even have a, a hateful thought in your heart, right? Don't even use the word raka, which means don't call somebody an idiot, right? You have committed, you have trans, transgressed the law of murder by doing that, right? He talks to us about adultery. He says, you've heard, you know, obviously we know what adultery is, but he, he says, even if you look at someone else with lust in your heart, you have broken that law, right? And so in the sort of second part of this great discourse, Jesus is giving us new laws, right? And they're not necessarily new, but he is intensifying what we call as the moral law. So the laws that are sort of moral in nature, the other laws within Judaism we refer to as purity laws, right? So there's laws about washing and what you can eat and what you can't and what you can wear. And that's about Israel remaining a pure and set apart nation, right? The moral law is about how to be a good person, a godly person. And so we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus intensifying, taking to the next level, those moral laws, okay? And so we, and, and it is called the Sermon on the what? This is important. The Mount. What did Moses do? Moses went up Mount Sinai and got what? The Ten Commandments, the law, right? And so Moses ascends a hill or a mountain it's the laws from God. Here we have Jesus going to a law. Importantly, he's not receiving laws from God. He is instead God himself delivering the new law. Okay. So he is, again, Moses kicked up. All right. The next level, the, the, the true Moses. We'll leave it there. Read that. And if you have questions, we can talk. The second discourse comes in chapter 10. And this discourse um, is largely instructions for the 12. This is the moment that he's going to send the 12 out um, in his name to preach, to proclaim the gospel through the whole uh, area. And so he does, he kind of gives them their marching orders, and then he goes on to give them instructions. And it's, it's interesting to read the instructions that Jesus is giving to them and to hear the warnings that he's giving to them. Matthew tells these stories in a way that Jesus is talking to the 12, but Jesus is talking to the church right? So Jesus is telling them to be ready for persecutions. He says, you're going to be hated on my account, right? As far as we know, when the 12 go out at this moment and they come back, they're rejoicing and talking about how great they saw, we saw, you know, Satan fall from, from heaven, right? They tell him all about the great things. And, and maybe they suffered some of these things, but we don't know. What we do know is the church that Matthew is writing his gospel to Right, that Jesus is founding and beginning will for sure 
undergo persecution. In that 80 to 100 period where this is being written, persecution is very heavy in parts of the, the Roman Empire. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a strong sense that Matthew is telling his gospel. God is using Matthew to tell his gospel. Certainly Jesus is talking to the 12, but he has also given instructions that are true and transcend the 12 and become instructions and warnings and, hey, heads up, here's what it means, church, for the church that is to come, okay? Um, so we know that a lot of what happens in his discussion with the 12 here ultimately will happen to the church. And so as the church is reading this gospel, they read Jesus telling the 12, the 12 this on their mission and think, oh, we, we, they see themselves in this, right? And that becomes very important um, for the church in order to see you know, Jesus speaking in some way uh, directly to them. And then this, the, third, the third discourse comes in chapter 13. And it's, we say it's a discourse. It is a series. Matthew has organized a whole string of parables together. Um, and so it becomes this long moment. If, if you look at it and you have one of those Bibles with red letters, you see just a, a whole string of red um, where Jesus is talking about uh, parables and they're, they're all, they all have to do with the kingdom. And the first set is the parable of like the, the different soils, parable of the weeds, uh, the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast. And they all have to do with the kingdom and how it is heard and received or not Right? And so how the word or the, the message of the kingdom is going to get out. And then the second set is the set that has the, like the parable of the hidden treasure, uh, the expensive pearl, and then what's known as the parable of the net. And this has to do with the value of the kingdom. This is where people are searching for the thing that they lost and then they find it and there's a party and, and Jesus is telling his disciples and the church uh, about how important the kingdom itself is. Um, and then in the end of that section, he closes with this comment about how the scribes of the kingdom, the scribes that are trained, we talked about who scribes are, right? Uh, I think it was last week or the week before, we talked about the scribes being the, the religious elite who were able to interpret and teach the law. So there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, who taught, who sort of received from the scribes the interpretation and would go out and teach, but it's the scribes who sort of had the, the real power because they're the ones who are actually reading and interpreting and saying, this is what this means. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus says, the scribes who are trained for the kingdom will bring out treasures both new and old, right? And this is one of those moments where we see the new Gentile, the old Jewish coming together, right? And so that those teachers, presumably the 12 here, but the teachers of the church will be adept and be trained in how to bring these, these, this new world together, this new community together, okay? Um, and then the fourth discourse picks up in chapter 18. And this discourse becomes rules for the community, right? And so we've got themes to each of these. And so in, in chapter 18, Jesus is going to talk to us a lot about how we ought to forgive one another, how we have to be humble, uh, how we have to seek reconciliation, not strife. And at the end of that discourse comes this really sort of uh, foreboding warning. It's, it's, a, it's a parable in which people are not forgiven and, uh, or do not forgive, and they have to pay all their debts. And he says, if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will do the same thing to you. In other words, if you don't forgive each other, you will not be forgiven. And so Jesus is sort of very pointedly and very harshly and to the point teaching his followers, this is how we need to treat each other inside the church with grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. 
And then in chapters 23 through 25, this is after Jesus has come into uh, Jerusalem and we get what are two speeches put together. One is a speech denouncing the Pharisees. This is where he calls them uh, hypocrites um, and tells his followers not to be like them. You know, they walk around with long robes and they do everything so that they, uh, they are seen, right? It's, 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 it's those stories. And he says, you need to not be like them. In fact, there's a section in there where he says, don't be called teachers, you have one teacher. Don't be called father, you have one father in heaven, right? And, and so he's, he's telling them, don't even take the titles that they take because that's not the way that we're supposed to relate to one another, right? And this picks up on the previous discourse when he's talking about how to relate to each other. Um, and then after that comes what's known as the Olivet Discourse, so the Mount Olive, right? Um, but this is where he sort of gives a little bit of a, a prediction. He talks about the coming des, 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 desecration, coming desecration of the temple, the destruction of the temple. Um, and then he goes into what can, can only sort of be understood as sort of an apocalyptic vision of the second coming about talking about how, you know, when that time comes, if you're pregnant, run for the hills. And you know, like, it just, it's kind of daunting. And there's a lot of debate about what of this is, is him talking about the coming temple destruction and the Roman empire that's gonna come in sort of ultimately desecrate Israel and how much of this is really sort of end times, what we call eschatology prediction. So just be aware that we don't really know exactly what he's talking about here. Um, and so you're free to, with the Spirit's guiding, interpret for yourselves. Um, and we could have discussions about that, but it is very much this talk about uh, the coming tribulation and trials and, and the establishment of the Lord's day. And so those are the five discourses, right? And so you have what is the first, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which is God going up to the hill to give new laws, right? And so a clear sort of mosaic uh, picture of Jesus there. Um, then you have instructions for persecutions sort of towards the church, telling them what life is going to be like in the second one. In the third, we have parables about the kingdom, um, both about how it will be spread the word of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, as well as heard and received, and also its value. Then we have rules for the community in terms of how we behave and treat each other. Um, and then we have this discussion about uh, the Pharisees and the sort of the coming end of, of days, so to speak, the, the day of the Lord. And then you get into the passion narrative. After that discourse, that discourse upsets them enough, the religious leaders, of course, that they're like, okay, we gotta get rid of this guy. And then we get into Passion Week. And we get into, obviously, the crucifixion, the resurrection, which leads us to this moment of the scripture that we read today, which is the Great Commission. And so the takeaways that I, I would want you to take away from um, Matthew, if you were to sit down and read it, if we were like, what are the big points? Uh, Matthew is, obviously, as we've said, showing us Jesus as the new, true, better Moses, okay? The Exodus narrative was the narrative for Israel. And Matthew wants us to understand that it is also the narrative, of course, for the church. He is a teacher. He is presented very much as a teacher. Um, whereas in the first Last week, the, what is it, our second gospel, but our first week on gospel, we talk about Mark. Mark is presenting the, presents Jesus in the first half as a miracle worker, establishing his status as the messenger from God. And then secondly, as the suffering servant. 
That's what Mark's gospel is about. Matthew presents Jesus as the teacher, okay? The new lawgiver. Um, and he, we said he relaxes purity laws, but he intensifies all of the moral laws. So he says, turn the other cheek. Don't have any angry thoughts or angry words. Don't have lustful thoughts. Love your enemies, right? And there is a tremendous sense in which, and it is true, these are not suggestions. They're not a list of take it or leave it ideas. Uh, they're not recommendations for how the church is. This is how the people of God are to act, do act. This is what it looks like. And so this is Jesus giving us the standards for the way we as his followers are to act individually and together. Um, this is how kingdom people live. And then the Great Commission. So the entirety of the, if you had to like summarize what is Matthew's gospel about, it is about what does it mean to be the church? And this is why it was the most popular because it was instruction after instruction encouragement after encouragement about what it means to be the people of God after the resurrection, in light of the resurrection. And at this moment of the Great Commission, still up on the screen, what does the first part of that say? Where are they? Galilee. Galilee. They went somewhere. They were told to go somewhere. On a mountain. Okay, there are three places where they find themselves on mountains. One was at the beginning, at the Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? This Moses moment where, God, where Jesus ascends the mountain and gives the law. The, one, the second, which we haven't talked about, is the transfiguration, where the three are brought to the mountain and God shows to them, but through the transfiguration, sort of this moment where Jesus is seen in his glory, um, who he is. God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Um, and so that's, that's another mountain moment. And then at the very end of the gospel, we've returned to the mountain and Jesus is giving the, the great commandment, the final instruction, right? This commissioning moment, right? The great commission. Um, and then we get his words, right? Go and make disciples of all the nation, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And these words are really important. Um, they very quickly found their way into the sacrament of baptism and the uh, ritual of baptism. Uh, when I have baptized people in the past, and I'm sure as you either have been baptized or have been part of a baptism and heard the words spoken over someone, we say, we ba I baptize you. at sort of the height of the moment, the moment we're actually going to dunk them or sprinkle them or whatever method we're going to use. Um, we say we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? Those words we have kept. They become a major part of uh, one of the sacraments, sort of the, the ritualistic grace moments of the church. Um, and they have tremendous meaning. But a lot of what has happened is we have allowed our theology and thought about what happens in baptism to inform what the words mean rather than allowing what the words mean informing baptism. And that has just happened over the centuries of the church um, as we've gotten further and further away from this moment and how Matthew has been using these words. I'm going to talk, look at that in just a second. But I, I, want, I want you to, if I say, or I describe to you that moment at baptism and, and say we've got somebody up here and we're going to baptize them and we go through the professions of faith and we get to the moment that we're actually going to do the baptism and we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? 
Okay? Hang on to that, because I didn't expect you to be right right out of the gate. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Like, you want to come up and, and teach today, Ricky? Because you, you got you nail on the head right there. So often, at least it's been in my experience, those words are understood to be uh, sort of an invocation or almost some sort of mystical spell that brings down the, and this is true, right? This is true. I'm not saying that this is not, but the, the use of those words is to invoke God's spirit upon this person to save them, right? In this moment, their sins are washed away. They're reunited with God, right? They are launched on their personal journey with Jesus at that point, right? And, and that's, that's true. This is the, another side of the conversation we had, I think, week three, when we talked about what is the gospel, right? And we talked about the gospel has largely been understood as salvation culture, right? You are sinful, uh, God, has, God loves you, he's made a plan for you, believe it and you'll be saved and go to heaven, right? And it's within that culture where we hear these words and they mean for us, they take on the meaning that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit is uh, bringing God's grace upon this person to save them to do that thing, right? They have, they have professed belief in the spiritual laws and it's the moment of baptism that they die to their sins, they come up as a new person and they go on about their life with Jesus, right? Um, the phrase in, the, in my name, right? Jesus uses one other time in Matthew's gospel. Does anybody have any idea when that was? There's one other time where Jesus uses the phrase and says to do something in my name. Sorry? To the least of these, that's a good guess, but not, not in Matthew's gospel. Um, the other time that this gets invoked is when he's telling his followers that whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I am also there, right? And this is why I was, kind of, I was shocked and pleased that Ricky said what he did, right? And repeat what you said, Ricky, that baptism does what? brings you in and brings you together, right? That Jesus, the, the other time that Jesus talks about doing anything in his name, right? It is the gathering of the people, the bringing in of the people, right? And so it is his name at the baptism, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit certainly does, there's salvific work, there's grace work there. Um, but in the same way that the salvation culture and the spiritual, for law, for, yeah, spiritual laws are true, they are not the whole picture, and neither is this understanding of baptism and, and this part of the Great Commission, right? Um, think a minute about what Matthew is telling us that Jesus does, right? If we step back and kind of take what we've said today about Jesus being the new Moses, right? What did Moses do, right? He leads people out of slavery, he goes up on the mountain, he gives them new laws about, and what are the laws about? Israel has been in slavery for a long time. The people coming out of Israel know nothing but servitude, masters telling them what to do, when to do it, when to eat, when to go to the bathroom, which rock to put where. That's their life, right? They know nothing about how to be a people in freedom. And so the laws that, Jesus, or that God gives to Moses are about establishing this new people, establishing them, the purity culture, purity laws are about separating them off from the rest of the world as God's people, but they're also just about how to live together 
in this newly found freedom because they just, they, they don't know how. They've never done that before. Um, and so he leads them out of the slavery. He gives them this new laws and way of life in the newfound freedom. He constitutes them as a new nation, as God's nations, certainly, which will bless the entire world. And then he leads them into the promised land. That's, that's the story of Moses, the Exodus, right? What does Matthew tell us about Jesus? Well, he does the same thing, right? He leads people out of slavery, right? That's what the cross is about. He's given us new laws. Two, at least two of our discourses are all about giving the church the new law, the new way. He's giving us freedom from some of the purity culture, some of the oppression of the Roman Empire, from our sin, right? And now we have to figure out how do we live in that new freedom? And this is a debate that's going to be picked up in a lot of Paul's letters too. Like, what do you, what do, you do in, your, in your freedom, right? Which, which of these laws do we follow? Which do we not? Um, and so he's doing this law giving in the same way. He constitutes a new nation. We talked about this, I think, in week one, actually. The first week I was with you back in June, we talked about uh, Peter's letter and, and the ways in which he talked about we are being built, we are the blocks being built into a spiritual house and we are new people. And it's as that new community and that new people that, that God is present in that people that God is present, right? And so he constitutes this new nation, a nation for himself. It's known as the ecclesia, which is the Greek word for called out ones. So he sets us apart. And we talked a couple weeks ago about this idea of soft difference, right? We, we are different. We live in this world as exiles, right? So he's pulled us out and apart as a community. And he will ultimately lead us into the promised land. He does the exact same thing that Moses has done. It's the exact same story told again at the next level, right? And Israel understood all along that they were not individuals. They were a people of God. What God had done was to fulfill his promise to Abraham to make Abraham a family, right? Barren childless Abraham and Sarah. God comes and makes this promise and says, I will give you as many sons and daughters as there are stars in the sky. And what Israel understands the Exodus to do is to establish that people, that nation, that family, right? And so when Jesus says to go do this in my name, well, what does Jesus accomplish? What does Jesus' name accomplish? What does it do? What is it there for? What is the entire gospel of Matthew telling us? The invocation of Jesus' name certainly saves, but that's not all that it does. The invocation of Jesus' name at any time, as we gather in his name, but certainly as we make disciples and baptize people, is exactly what Ricky said. It is to gather people into a family. Too often, I think, we perform a baptism and it becomes this spectator moment where we all watch as the pastor baptizes the person and great God did something for them. When in fact, it is this beautiful celebration of the family that we are all together. In the Methodist tradition that I came out of, part of the uh, baptism service is a, an asking everyone to recall the moments of our baptism. And for some of us, that was as babies. We don't really remember it, but it is recalling the entering into the family of God that we all have experienced to sort of renew the vows that this sort of person will be giving at this baptism. Remember the thing that God has done for us. Remember that we are all together. The moment of baptism is a family celebration, 
right? It is, it is the establishment of community. So when Jesus comes to the mountain here at the end, he returns to his mountain where he's been giving the law, he's given the law, where he's been transfigured, and now he will send forth his, his people, right? And he says, do this in my name. His commission is to go to gather people, right? He says, gather people. He says, lead them out of slavery, right? He's telling them to do exactly the things that he's done. Lead them out of slavery. Take them through the waters. We didn't even mention the moment that Israel follows or crosses the Red Sea, right? Which is a baptism metaphor uh, throughout the New Testament, right? That God leads his people through the waters, right? Um, which we have symbolized in baptism, right? He says, teach them, disciple them, make disciples, give them the new laws, give them the new rules. That's what discipleship is. It is a learning of the ways that we ought to be as followers of Jesus so that you know how to live into this new freedom that I've given you. Go make my new people. And as you do, go and journey towards the promised land together. This is Matthew's gospel. Right? This is the story that Matthew tells us about who, and who Jesus was, what he did, and what he has tasked the church with. Right? We now need to understand our role in being that new people and then gathering the world. The idea that Jews would go into all of the world and incorporate the world into the family of God was utterly unheard of. It was ground-shaking. I mean, the purity laws were all set up to establish a barrier to say, we are the people of God and all of you Gentiles were not. This is why this debate becomes so hot in the early church. What does it mean to be a Gentile who follows a Jesus Messiah? And some of what Matthew addresses, right? Jews would accept a Gentile who wanted to convert and they had a process for conversion, uh, which included ritual washing, which sort of, looks just like baptism. Um, but they did not go actively go out and try to recruit. So this moment, Jesus changes the game entirely and says to his followers, now is the time. The, one of the promises that were embedded in his promise to Abraham at the very beginning was that he would create a family that would be a blessing to the whole world. That has never been a reality until this very moment. The Great Commission the culmination of Matthew's gospel is the moment in which the great promise to Abraham is fulfilled and set into motion. It is the moment where Jesus says, okay, it's not all about us anymore. You've been called into this family and now I'm sending you out to do the very thing that I have done for you for all of the world, for all of the peoples. That God's nation, his people will be comprised of people from all nations. And as we know, they do it. And it finds its way through the entire Roman Empire and ultimately the entire world. And here we sit today as part of that. So as you read, I hope you go back and read Matthew. It's 28 chapters. If you take four chapters a day, you can read it in the next week. Um, and you sort of wrestle through it. Keep all of that in the back of your mind. As you hear Jesus teach, give instructions, come into conflict with the religious leaders of the day, all of the great juicy stories that we know exist, exist in the gospel, keep in your mind that Matthew is retelling this Exodus narrative and inviting us to find our place in the midst of it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you have done through your son. We thank you for the faithfulness of the writer of Matthew. We thank you for his wisdom and clarity in presenting Jesus to us. We recognize, as we learned last week, that to follow you means that we will make sacrifices. But we hear today that those sacrifices are in service of the great rescue plan for the world. That what Moses did with Israel, Jesus has done with the entire world, with us. That we are led out of slavery to sin. That we are led into a life with you that there are ways in which we ought to live. And we ask that you would give us the clarity and the wisdom and the discernment and the conviction to live in those ways, to be better people, to be more like your son. That as we read the Great Commission today, God, we ask that you would empower us to go forth from this place, to see ourselves taking up the mantle that Jesus has laid upon us, that we are his hands and feet to this world, that we now are to go and to gather people to seek the lost sheep, to bring them back to the family and rejoice. We ask that you would show us how to be your sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of the Christ. And we ask this in the name of your son and in the power of your spirit. Amen.